Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hello everybody and welcome to Scattered. I'm here with Mary, Jill and Juliet this morning. So we've got a full contingent and we are looking at Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23. Uh, So as we start to look at this passage, could somebody please recap for me what we spoke about last week? We looked a bit about uh, the context of this letter and it was written by Paul Uh, to the church in Colossae. Paul was in prison at the time while he was writing this letter and he actually hadn't been to the church there. It was Epaphras who took the gospel there. And so he's writing this letter because he's heard that there's been a report that um, there's false teaching in the church there. So um, he's writing as an apostle to give them the true teaching. So when we look at passages that aren't stories, it's quite often helpful to split them into chunks um, so that we can see kind of a thread of what's running through them or what uh, the author is trying to show us. So do you guys have any sort of structures that you use to look at this passage uh, verses 15 to 23 with? Yeah, I sort of broke it down into Verses 15 to 17. Sorry, when I say I, some of the people that I read about this, I'm not that clever. Um, Verses 15 to 17 is sort of looking at Jesus's supremacy in the first creation. Then the next few verses, 18 to 20, Jesus as being supreme over the second creation, the church. And then the last few verses, 21 to the end, are Jesus's supremacy in reconciling man to God. And I think we need to see that those first two things are crucial for the sec- for the third thing to be able to happen. So yeah, that was the structure that I found helpful. Yeah, sort of Christ's supremacy over the first creation is, is the pattern for the new creation that will come. Okay, so let's start with that first little bit, 15 to 17. What is it exactly, ladies, that we learn about Jesus here? Yeah, I was really struck in this section that Paul straight away draws the Colossians attention to the fact that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Like he shows us who God is. And Jesus, Jesus himself said that, didn't he, when he was on earth? Like, when you see me, you see the father. I was just reflecting on that and how amazing that is that he's also the firstborn over all creation. I did a bit of reading about this because I was a bit confused as to what that means. It's not really something that we say very often. And apparently lots of people think that that sounds like Jesus was, you know, kind of created with creation. Did you guys look into that kind of firstborn thing? Yeah. I think the general idea is that we can see from the next verse, can't we, that for in him all things were created. So we know that actually he wasn't created during creation. It's more the idea of him being Lord and heir of all creation, which is this big idea of him being supreme over creation. Yeah, I yeah, it's it's they're great verses, aren't they? I I was really struck by his role in creation and He's the architect of creation, isn't it? So it's his idea. He designs it, but then he actually does it. He actually makes it as well. And he's the reason for it. And so, yeah, that just blows your mind. We just can't 
you know, we've got one skill set, haven't we, often, we're an architect, or we can build, or it's being made for us, and we've got the money, but it's just like, in Jesus, all those things are true, he's the one who created, he, it was his idea, and it's for his glory, and yeah, it's just mind-blowing, isn't it, how different in nature Jesus is than us. In verse 17, it continues to say how he now uh, sustains everything and holds everything together. So not only is he the creator, but he's the one that holds everything together at the moment. Yeah, like it's on, it's an ongoing thing, isn't it? Like he was there before the beginning um, and then he was there at creation and he still continues to hold all things together. Like without him everything would just fall apart like that's his power isn't it yeah one of the things I read about the firstborn of creation phrase was that the word firstborn was a kind of typical ancient rabbi messianic title and they use that word in reference to the coming messiah so it's not so much the idea of him being born although he was it's more like pointing towards him being the the messiah and yeah, like you said, you know, he's, you guys said he's Lord of all creation. This, this section that we talked about at the beginning, um, if you look at this little section, there's five alls. So not only is he ascribed this messianic title by Paul during this section, he's the, he's the image of the invisible God. So he's, he's a likeness, but he's also the manifestation. So an unknowable God has become knowable. And then all these things um, these five alls in this little section. He's the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things were made. All things were created through him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. It's that whole, this little section in just two, verse, well, three verses, 15, 16, 17. You just see the completeness of Jesus and his lordship over all creation in that he created it and he sustains it it's it's beautiful three verses isn't it I find it really helpful to know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God because one of the things I struggle with in prayer and just in my faith in general is like who am I talking to and what's he like and you know I know he reveals him, himself in lots of different ways through creation and through his his word like in the old testament there were various ways that god revealed himself but then we we get to see and hear about this man who was god was you know god was pleased to dwell in him um and we can see that he's kind and he enjoys food and being with people and he gets alongside the poor and the broken and things like that i just love seeing Jesus in the New Testament and knowing that that is what God is like I think sometimes I get this kind of hazy you know God is spirit he is wonderful and awesome but I just struggle to sometimes talk to him but when then I think of him as this man who was amazing and that is God I just it helps me a lot in my faith I think it really reminds me Mary of that bit in John 1 about the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and it is just so kind of God isn't it to help us see him in a way that we can, our smaller minds can understand. Yeah, I agree. I, I find that's such a helpful truth, isn't it? That all of God is in Jesus for us to see. Yeah, because this is in the context, isn't it, of these Colossians receiving some kind of heresy 
into their midst. And so it's so important, isn't it, that they really know that they, like we saw in verse 10 of chapter one, that they are growing in the knowledge of God. And how do you do that? You look at Jesus, you see the image of God in Jesus and that, you know, you can grow to know God more and therefore stay in the truth by looking at Jesus. Like it's helpful to them, isn't it, that Paul is saying these things and to us. Yeah, and I was really struck by in verse 16, where it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. There's a really helpful fallout application for us there, isn't there? That all those other things, positively, they don't have anything extra to give us that Jesus hasn't can't give us. And then negatively, they don't they don't need to frighten us because Jesus is more powerful than any other power. And so we don't need to look to them positively, but equally, we don't need to be scared of anything negatively because Jesus is, has created everything. Jesus has created every other thing possible. And isn't that pertinent in this day and age where there's this huge, powerful country attacking another one? And we can read this about our king who is before all things in him, all things hold together like the the Christians in Ukraine and all over the world can trust in this Jesus who, even though it feels like things are falling apart, we know that it's not outside of his control. And also that it's not purposeless because the end of verse 16 says, all things were created through him and for him. So everything, everything has purpose in life. Pain is not pointless. Joy Mm -hmm. is not pointless. Everything is created for Jesus. And although we cannot see that with our tiny human minds in the completion of the new creation we will we will understand and i guess it reminds us who we are as well because we just as everything else in this world are created and so we were made for him and it really informs how we make decisions and where our hope lies we can know that we have a creator that you know, has this authority. So we don't need to, like Jill said, we don't need to fear. There's someone we can talk to about all of these different struggles that there are. Yeah, what you said there, Juliet, about we're created and our place within this, it's so helpful to remember that, isn't it? I was talking with Paul last night about this passage and saying, you know, normally with teaching or anything that we read, we assess it, don't we? And work out, can I trust that? And actually, because of who Jesus is, his word assesses us, doesn't it? It's the other way around. We sit under it and are assessed by it. And it's so helpful to see our place as created by him. We don't get that opportunity to assess him because he's the creator and he's the wise one. Let's move on now to the next section, little section 18 to 20. What do we learn about Jesus in this section here? In verse 18, he says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And this is really important for us to remember as he's the one that feeds through his word and sustains and is the one that gives the instruction for the church to be under. So just as everything is created by him, he has given us his word to help us to know how we can relate to him and how we can grow as his body. Yeah, and it's helpful, isn't it, the head image? Because 
if you chop the head off from the body, then the body's useless. And actually the body gets its, um, all its, everything comes from the head, doesn't it? And everything that makes the body function and makes the body work is from the head. And so I think as well, thinking about the original letter to a church that was maybe being encouraged to move on from Jesus and okay, Jesus was the first thing you learned, but now you need to move on. This is a really helpful reminder, isn't it? That you're only alive when you're connected to the head. What did you guys make of the meaning of him being firstborn from among the dead in verse 18? Helen defined that term firstborn that was commonly used then as actually a title, like he's the firstborn as in our Messiah, rather than um, the first one to rise from the dead. Because as we know, you know, Lazarus rose from the dead. So it wasn't meaning that he was the first person, but he was he's the most important one. He is our Messiah to rise from the dead. And, and also he's the only one, right, who didn't then die again. Like Lazarus mm. was resurrected, but he then lived his earthly life and then died. Whereas Jesus, we know, has been resurrected to eternal life. And that's what I took that to mean. The firstborn from the dead, as in the firstborn uh, risen again from the death that is involved with, that's associated with sin, earthly life. And he's been raised to this eternal life. And I guess at the second part of the verse, that in everything he might be preeminent, it's important to remember, isn't it, that he's been raised to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And so his position now as preeminent over the church is, um, yeah, he's the only one that's seated right there with the Father, isn't he? Which is fascinating when you take that in with um, verse 16 as well, where Paul's talking about the you know, where he, he says, um, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And you just wonder what this heresy that the Colossians were being taught was about. You know, that Paul's having to speak so directly to the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ. You know, what was it that the Colossians were beginning to be tempted to believe that, that Jesus was less than, um, than he is? In verse 20, we see this word reconcile used, don't we? And it's used again in verse 22. I was reflecting a bit on that and how here we see Jesus named as the person through whom we are reconciled. So all things are reconciled, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I guess that kind of links back with kind of verse 13 and 14. Paul seems to be really going hard on this is what Jesus did. So he's redeemed you and he's reconciled you. I mean, that word reconcile is bringing together, restoring people into a good relationship again. So I guess here we're thinking us uh, and God reconciling to himself all things. What did you make? Because I was looking at, in the ESV, it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What would you guys say to someone that would say, but Jesus didn't die for everybody? Like, wasn't it selective salvation? I think we've got to look at the verse to understand what the all means. And I think the all is then explained in the next little section that says whether on earth or in heaven and so I think that reconciliation is it's about our personal salvation but it's also about the new heavens and the new earth and the way that um, Jesus is going to reconcile all created order both in heaven and on earth in the new heavens and the new earth and 
yeah, I, I think that next little phrase is the explanation of the all. And I think also it's important when we look at the letters, especially, or any part of the Bible, actually, that we see it in the whole picture. And so what we read in the Gospels <clears throat> or in other letters that Paul writes help inform us about different questions that we ha might have. Well, we know Jesus speaks quite clearly about that not all people will be saved. Um, he talks about this in Matthew chapter 25. Um, and Paul elsewhere also set, talks about some people being saved and some not, um, like his letter in 2 Thessalon Thessalonians. <laughs> so what we're talking about is a word that some people might have heard of called universalism, um, this concept that everyone's going to get saved anyway. The implications for the Christian faith, if that were to be true, are quite astounding. Elsewhere in the Bible, it, it is, like Juliet said, it is stated very clearly that um, not all will be saved. Um, and so that is not what Paul is saying here um, in verse 20. Mm. And I guess just to add to that, I think that is a very painful subject for a lot of people. So don't think we're talking about this lightly. It hurts. Um, it's painful to God too. And you can read that in other places as well. That's really helpful to say, like all of us have non-Christian family members. I am the only member of my, my family who's a Christian currently. None of the rest are yet. So we don't, yeah, I think it, we need to say, don't we, that we don't say these things lightly. Not everything in the Bible is easy for us to deal with, but if it is true, then we must hold to it. Uh, just one last question on this section. What does it mean in verse 20 by making peace by the blood of his cross? The NIV uh, translation says by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We so much shy away from blood and gore, don't we, in our culture? So we don't like the idea of the, you know, the blood shed on the cross. But I guess that's what made peace like Jesus in giving his life, in shedding his lifeblood. That's what gives us life because he's paying for that sin, like all those sacrifices throughout the Old Testament uh, were pointing towards, was this one perfect creator God sending him his son to die on the cross to fulfill all of those sacrifices. So yeah, it's that picture of this, this lifeblood being shed for, for mm. the sin of the world. I was just going to say that the verses before, that it was all the fullness of God that was dwelling in that blood, it was the blood of God himself that had to be shed to pay for our sin. And yeah, I, you look back at the Old Testament and think, how could we think that the blood of a dove or a goat could pay the price? But yet the, the blood that contained all the fullness of God was the price that needed to be paid. And also, how could we look at our works and think that that could pay the price? How easily, personally, anyway, I look to oh, I'll do better next time. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder. How that must appear to God as filthy rags when this, uh, yeah, the, the blood of the person in whom he was pleased to dwell had to be shed instead. Yeah. So having talked about this beautiful description of Jesus um, up till now, in verse 21, Paul suddenly turns the tables on the Colossians and says, and you, what do we learn about ourselves here? What do we learn about our role um, in relation to Jesus? It's not flattering, is it, of who we were before? So I guess verse 21 is a description of who we were before that blood was spilt for us and before we were reconciled. Um, 
alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's not the most flattering description, but I guess, I guess you've got to, you've got to accept that is the reality, isn't it? Before you can accept what Jesus did and the, the your need of it. And so I think it's really helpful that Paul reminds them of where they've come from and how much they've been changed by that um, blood that was spilt. It's interesting that phrase, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. That's what the NIV says, or doing evil deeds is what the ESV says. I just think that's really important, isn't it? I think um, Paul is often appealing to the truth, isn't he? And that being something that you need to know. And I think in Romans as well, it's really strong that people, that mankind has kind of suppressed this knowledge of God that they had in their minds, but they've suppressed it. And that's when we turn to evil deeds. That's when we are given over to evil deeds. Um, So it's interesting, isn't it? There's this, Paul knows that there's this battleground in people's minds um, and he's appealing to them to really seek and search out truth so that, you know, when they yeah the gospel can really take root in their hearts and then bear the fruit like we talk, you were talking about last week bearing fruit and you know being the hope that means they can love others well and stuff like that like it's it's faith is very internal isn't it it's not just about what we're doing it's about where our heads and our hearts are at we all need to recognize that in some ways we are all still hostile in mind towards god hostile in mind basically means you don't like thinking about God as he really is or his ways as they really are we think about him the way we would like him to be or the things of the way things we would like things to be um and and so you know I want this to happen for me this would be better for me in some ways that we are therefore hostile in mind to God and 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 alienated but that's I think is the beauty of verse 22 it says verse 21 says and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds verse 22 says he has now reconciled so he we had this alienated um status in some ways we are still battling with that and ongoing but actually Jesus has dealt with that we have that change in status not because of anything we have done in fact we only changed after Jesus has dealt with our sin. We recognize that he's dealt with it. That's when we change. God has not met us halfway. God has met us all the way in Jesus and done that, that movement, that change of status for us from alienated to reconciled. Yeah, because I guess the, because in verse 23, it talks about, doesn't it? If you continue in your faith, established and firm, mm. And do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So there's this kind of feeling, isn't there, that, again, we know that Paul is writing this to the church in Colossae to encourage them not to be moved, I guess, by this this heresy that's happening. And yeah, it's a battle in our minds, isn't it? How do we cultivate the truth in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives? Like how, what does it look like to be entering into this battlefield with I guess the world and with sin and with spiritual evil spiritual forces like what what does it look like for you guys to be doing all of that well it's interesting Mary I just today we're recording this on um, 
Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. And I have basically printed this passage out, those, those first two sections about Jesus, laminated it, put it by my kettle, just so that, you know, in those down moments when I'm tempted to think about unhelpful things, I'm just determined over these next 40 days to try and learn this passage so that my mind in those moments is mulling over who Jesus is, his power, his authority, his grace, how he's moved towards me. So, yeah, I mean, that's not a perfect answer, is it? But that's one way that I just, this week when I was studying it, I thought, okay, I'm going to learn this because this is what I want to be going round in my mind rather than anything else that might be um, futile thinking. No, I think that's really helpful, isn't it? Because whenever we talk about how we can, uh, like you said, Mary, live in this life that is effectively a battle, I think the only way you can manage it, the only way that you can be changed um, and and fight the good fight is is through looking at Jesus. Okay, why am I doing all of this? Who is helping me? And for me, it's that bit in verse 18 it, where it just says, he is the beginning. He is the beginning of your faith. Um, of the world of creation of your new life when you come to faith he's the beginning of your new life and and without him none of your nothing would be changed nothing about you would be changed certainly not in the way that God wants it to be and so you have to continuously be dwelling on him his word uh, you know having good Christian friends around you who can speak truth to you hard truths sometimes <laughs> but yeah I, I agree with Jill I think dwelling on Jesus is is key and I guess that that part in verse 23 helps us they're not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard so yeah not putting our trust on other things but keep keeping coming back and yeah building on that yeah just being shaping all our thoughts our life around the hope of the gospel I think it's helpful as well to think of things that you enjoy doing so for me for example I love art I love poetry things like that I guess one way to be fighting well is to be trying to you know if we struggle to just meditate on a passage just have it sat in front of you I guess you know for example like Jill was saying like having a few verses that you want to meditate but doing it through art like thinking of ways you can express it through art or poetry like I love writing poetry that kind of reflects a bible passage I guess putting music on if you're someone who just loves to sit and listen to music just I guess just being aware that our yeah our minds so easily fixate on things and ruminate on things and are distracted by like a million things but it's really healthy isn't it to be thinking what yeah what is my thought life like and how can I channel it more towards what is beautiful and good and true Um, I think that really affects that will like ripple out into our lives won't it when we're meditating on good and true things it really does affect the rest of our lives and I think one of the barriers I find um, is guilt he says in verse 22 that Actually, he's made us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And that really gives us this safety, isn't it? That he's done this transformation in us. And so we don't need to think, oh, I haven't read my Bible in like three days. He's going to feel so, you know, I'm so guilty. 
but actually his blood has made us holy and right. And so we can approach his throne. We can pray to him. We can read his Bible, fighting that lie that Satan has that you're guilty, you're condemned and accusing us of all our sin. As we've been talking, I've realized that what we're basically saying is the truth of the gospel, this thing that we need to, whichever way we do it, whether it's through sport, um, art, music, whenever we're mulling it over, we, we can find the truth in the Bible. That is where the ultimate truth is. So anything that we hear, you know, in regards to Jesus or our status before God needs to be compared. And we need to look at his word. What does the Bible say about this? Is this, is what I'm being told compatible with what the Bible says? Because if it is incompatible with what the Bible says, then it is not truth. And, and, and so, yeah, when I, I when I think about, um, I'm th- thinking about music, Mary, as you were talking, because for me, when I get fearful, for example, about where my family's moving to, or when I um, get angry about stuff, I quite often turn to music. Um, I play the guitar very badly, but I do play the guitar. And I'll often, in those moments, deliberately choose songs that speak gospel truth to refresh my mind and reset my thought process and you're right it does then ripple out uh do you guys have anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't discussed i just thought it was interesting that verse 23 says that the gospel has been heard and has been proclaimed to every creature in under heaven and i found it interesting that when you if you read around that uh most people who are greek kind of nerds would say that a better translation of that would be the gospel is proclaimed to every creature under heaven so I found that kind of helpful because when you first read that you might be a bit like what it's already been proclaimed to every creature under heaven but it's more a thing that is currently happening I mean if you want to go and geek out on that Hermione and Hermione the second then do (laughs) you probably already have Um... (laughs) that's helpful (laughs) Juliet's shaking her head at me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's just gone no, to I get think her that Greek. it's important to say isn't it I think again yeah. this is another verse which can be taken out of context and people can use in different ways so yeah just making it clear that the gospel is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven and that we are a part of that and that is mm. what God has called us to to do no matter where we are whether we're in East Manchester or other parts of the world Okay, great. Thanks, everyone. Uh, We will uh, see you next week for another installment of Colossians. Bye.